Welcome to Future Forecast, a podcast by Oslo Business Forum and myself, where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we'll be talking about zero user interaction interfaces, what it is, what it means, and what it can do for humanity. We are talking to Tugbark Duman, an expert on zero UI interfaces from the company Futurist in Finland. Tugbark has published two theses about facial recognition, the first one about training facial recognition algorithms, and the second one about the identification of airline frequent flyers through smart glasses equipped with facial recognition. He has led several futuristic projects such as facial recognition payment systems in Finland and in Norway, a walk-paced identification pilot with Finnair and Helsinki Airport, an Amazon Go-like vending machine experience with a dairy company, Tina, and he led the first commercial glass application of Google Glass in the Nordics. Welcome, Tugbark. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Isabel. It's a pleasure. So to begin, I would like to bring every one of our listeners to a common ground on what it actually is that you work with. Zero user interaction interfaces or zero UI popularly known as. What is it? So zero UI stands for zero user interfaces, as as you suggested. And um, people have been calling it different names. It's been called interfaceless world, anticipatory tech and the world beyond digital. But as all these names suggest, it has something to do with um, doing away with the traditional user interfaces, such as screen, and doing so in favor of much more natural, intuitive interaction with technology and information. Actually, this trend, if you, if you think about it, is nothing new. Uh, I mean, ever since the invention of the first computer, we have been on a mission to make our interaction with information more effortless, more natural, and intuitive. So. We started with the, the, the punch card computers. Uh, we had the desktop PCs uh, with which we interacted with uh, keyboards and mouse. Now we have the information at our fingertips. We really are keen on getting real close to the physical connection with the information. So why, you know, given the history of, of the technological advancement, why Zero UI is such a big tick, big tick now? It is because now we develop the technology to the, pain that, uh, to the point that it is possible. The ultimate zero UI experience is possible. Variables, machine learning, big data, biometrics, sensor technology, connectivity technologies like 5G are coming together to embed digital experiences into physical spaces with invisible interfaces and intuitive interactions, effectively creating the zero UI paradigm shift. Exactly. So you mentioned already a few of the technologies. So wearables and sensors and big data and machine learning, biometrics, they're all kind of at least termed as separate technologies. But uh, they're also that when you combine these uh, concepts or technologies, they lead to this paradigm shift that you uh, mentioned uh, in which zero UI interfaces are a true reality. First of all, what are these different technologies uh, and why are they necessary? And perhaps when are they going to start realizing their potential to X out the human interaction, connecting our physical world to the digital one? I mean, frankly speaking, we still have a lot of time to go and a lot of work to do to reach the zero UI utopia where there is no interfaces, everything is connected and then the same exact level of experience can be achieved with no efforts from the users. And this is a good thing, by the way, because I believe we don't yet have the, the technical infrastructure, the business models and the societal readiness for it. 
Uh, I'm sure we will talk about this uh, later, probably, uh, but we don't know what a uh, zero UI society would look like. But it doesn't mean that we're not applying the zero UI thinking in uh, micro scale in different industries. This uh, brings me to the first part of your question. For example, the automotive industry is being revolutionized by zero UI thinking. Everything from a wearable connection to biometrics, gesture recognition to voice UIs are being implemented. Retail gets a makeover with the likes of Amazon Go and, and uh, likes of the project that I've done with uh, Tina Technology Lab, the, the, the vending machine experience. And the airport experience will look quite different in the near future. And when you say the Tina experience, uh, I just uh, we're, we're gonna I'm gonna ask you in more detail about this, but just to make that clear, this Tina experience is similar to the Amazon Go experience, which I also would like to define for our listeners. In which it's basically the ability to be able to walk into any store, and these stores do exist. I've been to one myself, where you just scan your phone on the way in with the, using the Amazon Go app, and you're basically able to grab whatever kind of grocery you want and seamlessly walk out of the store. Uh, and you did something similar with Tina, where you were able to just grab something out of a fridge and then it automatically deducted the payment out of your phone. Am I right? Yes, exactly. It was uh, basically Amazon Go in a, in a micro scale. The user who opted in, who wanted to be part of the experience, they enrolled their faces. There was a credit card uh, in the production version. There will be a credit card attached to it and the computer vision algorithm running uh, simultaneously inside the fridge to recognize the items that uh, you are picking uh, up from the fridge. So the experience looks like you come near to the fridge, it recognizes you, unlock the door, you uh, grab whatever you wanna grab, and then you close the door and the payment is taken care of of automatically basically bringing your experience uh for example with the fridge that you have at home into public spaces where the technology part the interaction part made invisible it's it just sounds fantastic uh we'll get into the other aspects of this later but in 2014 you wrote your thesis on facial recognition for frequent flyers in the airport um i am literally the most impatient person you'll ever meet uh it's a trait i was born with and especially at airports my tolerance, and I think I'm speaking for very many people, is just embarrassingly low. And I've often dreamt of just being able to walk right through with no means of identification or security stops and just get right on the plane. And in fact, you launched a pilot resembling my dream experience with a Finair in Helsinki using walk-paced identification. So how did this work? Uh, what did you find? And I guess most importantly, when can we have this? Yeah, it's it's everybody's dream when it comes to airports, especially I was in the I was in the US last month and uh, it is quite different than Europe. You you feel grateful the experience in, in, in Europe after being in US airports. But back to the topic, <laughs> yes. walk-based identification actually is uh, another application of the said uh, zero UI thinking. Let's think about it. In an airport, as a passenger, what you would uh, want to do would be to get to your flight, get to your aircraft. Um, if you're early on, what you maybe want to do would be to enjoy a bubbly or uh, shopping before your flight departs. But instead, what you end up doing, a lot of waiting, a lot of queuing, and uh, producing a lot of documentation for uh, at different touch points for different stakeholders. That makes the experience uh, less enjoyable and more stressful. So we wanted to test the possibility of hiding this 
gatekeepers, these touch points where you needed to queue, where you needed to produce a form of identification behind something essential to your experience, which is walking. In an airport, you would anyways walk from point A to B. So what we have done it was in Helsinki Airport on a dedicated check-in desk, people who, who have opted in and enrolled to the, the, the facial recognition biometrics system was, re- was recognized as they walk towards to the check-in desk. And the check-in agent was able to offer a touch of personalization and a boarding pass was ready when they arrived to the desk already. So the, the idea was to test the possibility of uh, what would happen if we stretch out this kind of experience to the all touch points at the airport. And when it comes to when actually this will become reality, I can say that the aviation industry is under pressure. They estimate 7.5 billion passengers passing through airports every year by the year 2036. And the problem is they cannot physically expand anymore. They don't have the, the physical capacity. They don't have the space to facilitate that demand. So among many other things, they have the mandate to look into advanced passenger processing, aka the walk pace identification, as we call it. However, as the pilots going on around the world, industry realized that all the stakeholders that make up the airport experience needs to be on, on board. And even that is not enough because, uh, you know, no one's journey ends in one single airport. So you need to bring other airports and maybe other stakeholders that makes up the tra- travel ecosystem in order to make this experience meaningful. So in such a complex ecosystem, who owns the biometrics data, how it is transferred between the parties? where it is stored are the question right now that are being worked out in work in work groups in consortium around this so that is the, the state of affairs uh walk pace identification uh for air travel experience so i also want to touch my toes a little bit into the technical aspects of this and understand the actual process enabling this basically just how it works i mean how does biometric identification work i mean are you how are you able to biometrically identify that a person is who they say they are for example through their own face or their fingerprint or their eye so biometric identification on a principal level works similarly to how we uh, recognize each other. So especially that what makes them interesting and that's what makes them uh, a good fit for this zero UI paradigm shift. So uh, when you see a person, you take a mental image of the person and you attach the important information necessary to be remembered about that person. The next time you see that person, you basically match the two images that you have seen uh, of the person and remember the mental note that you have had about that person. And the facial recognition, the software works exactly on a uh, same uh, principle. So you introduce the software, a face saying that this is um, Isabel, she's the host of Future Forecast. And that photo that you have uh, provided to the system is turned into a biometric ID, a mathematical model of your face. The image at that point is actually irrelevant. You don't need to store it even. And the next time you step uh, in front of a camera that is using the, the, the system that database is attached to, it takes another photo of you, turn it into another mathematical model and ask to the database, hey, uh, do you have anything resembling this mathematical model that I have at hand now? And when the answer is yes, it's Isabel Rignes, that information about you that is held in the database displayed whatever the end user application is. 
That's very interesting. I, I, I've actually been able to open my mom's phone a few times using facial recognition. And uh, I assume maybe the facial recognition wasn't very good because obviously my mom and I do look very different, but there are going to be similar traits there. So maybe the percentage was just high enough uh, in terms of similarity so that it actually opened. Before we uh, dig further into this fascinating area, I want to know how you yourself got into this field. Because before starting the biometric business unit at Futurist in 2016, you worked in various aviation areas, including airport ground services and aircraft maintenance, even though you had no background in aviation or aircraft engineering. I respect a person who just jumps into a field without having any experience in it and just learns. I think we should all do more of that. Uh, but even before that, you worked as a call center agent in Istanbul during your bachelor's degree, which you told me has become a cornerstone of your career. What's your story and how did it spark a passion for this field of zero UI? Yeah, before I start answering this question, I'd like to let everyone know that no aircraft was heard in my watch, although <laughs> I started the I started the job with no um, experience. But I, I'd like to answer this question in two parts. Uh, the, the first one is what enabled me, and the second part is how and why did I choose to do what I do right now. So for the first part, I believe every single experience you have had in life is valuable, and you can take the learnings, you can take the skills you gained to take your career to the next level. If you know that, your asks in life just becomes a question of framing. So when I work, when I wanted to work as a project coordinator at an aircraft maintenance company, I did not tell them, hi, I worked as a check-in agent at the airport and uh, at a call center, hire me. I said, hi, I have keen eye for documentation and I'm a really sharp communicator. Here is a two experience that proves that, hire me. And uh, that got me the job. And I realized uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a working approach and it got me to places uh, later in life as well, to the point where I landed the, the project manager role for the Google Glass project, where we brought the, the, the first commercial application in the Nordics, to my knowledge, in Tampere for traffic wardens. The project was bringing variables and computer vision to create a zero UI experience for the traffic wardens. And it made their life so much easier and less stressful. And at that point, after delivering the project, I felt like I found my why, as, as Simon Sinek would put it. Uh, why not make everyone's life easier and stressful? And uh, zero UI seemed like the natural path. Thank you for mentioning Simon as well, because we have uh, already had him on the podcast and he had an, an incredibly uh, inspiring talk about how to find your why. So we're recommending everyone to listen to that. But uh, you also have a very, very cool story. And I also want to talk about Google Glass and that project that you did in the Nordics uh, a little bit later. But first, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of global aspect of this or the technology aspect of this and the impact that it has on us. Because the past 50 years, it's it's brought a tsunami of digital devices to our fingertips. And many of these devices and technologies, they're meant to connect us and to simplify our lives and to bring us information and to optimize our workday. And undoubtedly, they have truly revolutionized the world to the better, uh, in most ways at least. Yet it seems that we've reached this point in time in which we're kind of tech greedy and lack of a better word. And many of 
the original use cases for our digital devices are proving symptoms of the opposite. Our phones are meant to connect us, but we're also being fueled uh, into isolation and loneliness. Our smart homes are, you know, here to create a seamless living experience, but they're humorously driving us crazy. And I'm speaking of experience here. Our digital workdays are distracting more than they're optimizing. And while the internet meant to democratize information and educate the world is increasingly leading to polarization and fake news. I know this isn't directly related to zero UI in and of itself, but how do you think, if you have any thoughts on it, that zero UI is going to fit into all of these trends that we're seeing? How is it going to impact us? I believe on one hand, everything you have mentioned as the driver of the zero UI paradigm shift. So directly relevant. We believe that it is that sweet spot of human machine interaction. We get the same level, uh, sorry, even more convenience that the technology has brought to our life, but the interaction will feel like a non-technology experience, just taking a walk or having a conversation. But as you said, and that as that said, we have a track record of disproving, at least partially, all the rosy scenarios around emerging technologies and emerging concepts like this one. And it is uh, to a limited degree happening now for um, zero UI enabler technologies. For example, the, the smart home assistants that are meant to help us access the information without, for example, interrupting a conversation, making at least some of my friends, you know, talk and reveal less because they essentially don't trust the service providers behind the technology. Wow. And with that, with that history, keep itself repeating because we tend to bring technology and a trend and a paradigm shift like this uh, that could create a colossal change on individuals and on the society without taking time to understand what would those impact be. And as if that is not enough, we drive it to the point where keeping up with life is not possible without being part of that paradigm shift. And that's the point we stop and uh, look back and say that oh, what we have done, how can we combat the consequences that we ourselves created? And uh, as I'm a huge believer of zero UI, I am also a believer that it can lead to a colossal change. And for a change of that side, this approach would be a bit too late to think about the consequences. So the time is now for us to actually consider how can we get the best out of this change without avoiding the side effects as much as possible. So, I mean, in, in many ways, you know, the technology, the actual physical devices that are in between us are, you know, just in their natural habitat kind of driving us apart from each other because they're just like a physical thing in between us. But then when it's all around us, yes, maybe it's more likely that we talk to each other and that we interact because there's not something physically inhibiting us from doing so. But then you said something really interesting there, and, and that was that your friends are wary about talking in your apartment if it's a smart home apartment or house. And, and it made me think of the example with Amazon Alexa. I'm sure you know of this, but a few years ago, I think it was actually only just one year ago, where a couple was having an argument and Amazon Alexa recorded the argument and for some reason, uh, at fault, uh, sent the recording to a colleague of the woman in the house, which, you know, is 
kind of crazy, uh, but it does, you know, it's good that these things kind of happen early on. And like, hopefully (laughs) this woman didn't have any consequences from this happening. But it is, you know, it is worth thinking about. And I'm curious to see, like, will this technology drive us further together or will it make us scared and weary about being around each other because we're kind of constantly under surveillance? Well, it's about uh, it's going to be boiling down to the decisions that we um, take today. And um, when it comes to zero UI, the fact that we don't see the technology, the fact that it is so easy to interact, and the fact that there's less visible interaction should not mean that users don't have the control over what's going on, as in the case of Amazon Alexa. And I think uh, for that, in the short run, the best decision that we can take is making education a metric in the projects, in the products, in the softwares uh, we ship. This, of course, also means that individuals like you and me educating ourselves on the extent of the data being used, but in the bigger responsibility, as I mentioned, the bigger share of responsibility goes to the service providers, agencies, creative uh, consultancies like us. We need to learn how to operate on minimum data and we need to learn it so that we use even that minimum data on a need to know basis. And we embed education as part of the user experience. Every step of the way, by interacting with your service, I should be able to understand what piece of data being used, for what reason, and how. And in the long run, Mm. the decision that we should uh, take is to have a systemic change. We need to shift uh, the control over the data from corporations, from the service providers, to their rightful owners, you and me, us, people. Nowadays, we almost need to ask permission to see what's happening with our data. And in a zero UI utopia, if we want to get to a zero UI utopia, companies can ask us the access to get to the information that we would like to share with them for a given period of time. Yeah. So from one data giant, Amazon, to another data giant, Google, uh, you were the project lead for the first ever commercial application of Google Glass in the Nordics in Tampere. For context here, anyone who doesn't know Google Glass, because, I mean, in our world, it's almost considered old at this point. It was basically a computer interface that you would wear, like you would wear a normal pair of glasses. But with these glasses, you could see whatever was going on in the digital world, just like you can on your phone. But your phone was basically connected to your eyes. I guess you could kind of characterize this as a close to zero user interface, even though it maybe was a little bit intrusive. But Google Glass never became widely adopted by the general public. And I will admit that I've tried it at a few occasions and uh, not very impressed. Uh, I was living in New York at the time and people wearing the application were actually coined glass holes and some glass holes were even attacked and blamed and uh, barred out of different bars uh, because people were saying that they were surveilling people without their knowledge. Tell me, in your experience, having worked with this, what happened to Google Glass? Why don't you think that it worked? And do you think that we're going to see a relaunch of this in the future? I saw the glass as an attempt from Google to understand where the uh, world is going, actually. And yes, I agree. If you single out Google Glass as a product line, uh, it wasn't successful. The tech was not mature enough. And uh, if you have tried it, you would know that the the battery lifespan was not long. It was uh, not robust. The form factor was not there. There was the controversial camera. And um, with that, you can't simply enter the mass consumer uh, market. But it gave birth to a new kind of thinking 
which led to a swarm of new applications. Second movers have seen where Google went wrong. Now, there are numerous startups, tech giants, have introduced their augmented reality class or smart class that is meant for B2B use in logistics, in maintenance, in heavy machinery, and in creative work where the form factor and price is, are not the, the, the biggest concerns. Microsoft, HoloLens, uh, Vuzix, for example, are the companies that uh, I can say on top of uh, from the top of my mind. And even the Glass, uh, I don't know if you heard about it, but uh, May 2019, if I'm not mistaken, they made a comeback with an enterprise edition. It's uh, it's a similar looking glass, probably more robust and uh, with uh, the focused industry focused approach. And uh, six years uh, have passed after Glass is dead. And um, now I see there are companies that uh, has been working on the form factor. They limited the functionalities and did away with the controversial camera to make their entrance to the mass consumer market. Nordfocal, View, and actually Amazon released recently the Echo Frames uh, to make their debut in the, in the in the consumer market with a smart glass. And then all uh, after all, I'm sure Google Glass taught. A lot to Google, not only about the, the what should be the target group of a smart class or the form factor or the price tag, but I don't find it a coincidence that there's only one year between uh, Google killing the, the consumer edition of Glass and their efforts in voice assistant peaking in 2016 with the launch of the Google Assistant. Maybe they have learned that the first point ent of entry to the zero UI world is actually the voice. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, because uh, I mean, this is a geek in me asking, uh, might not be as interesting for every listener. But when you say that Google uh, does enterprises now with their glass application, does because uh, I heard that they do or that they use this in surgery rooms, surgeons are collaborating, you know, across the globe using these glasses? Or was this just an ad campaign from Google? I haven't heard that particular particular use case. No, I have heard that uh, there is a lot of uh, initiatives going on. And uh, mind you that Google does not allow companies to order or individuals to order the Google Glass Enterprise Edition, but they are working basically uh, with companies, handpicked companies themselves, farmers, logistic companies, as I said, heavy machinery companies, log uh, I mentioned the logistics already. So with those companies to figure out uh, what is the the, um, the silver bullet of applications for the Google Glass Enterprise Edition. Yeah, and I mean, lots of praise to Google for actually trying, uh, because uh, we, we are moving forward and it's important to have these test cases, even though they may seem like a very big failure. And you mentioned this yourself as a big failure for everyone else. It does lead them in the right direction because learning what is right is just as important uh, as learning what is wrong. Now, we can't discuss zero UI and everything that it requires of us in terms of unique and very personal data points without acknowledging the obvious privacy and security concerns. You've already uh, touched on a few of the things that we should be concerned with. Um, and uh, you mentioned earlier that we generally tend to notice the extremes when we criticize these technologies. And the reference almost always go to China and their controversial use of facial recognition technology. However, technology tends to infiltrate itself slowly and gradually on our lives and breakthroughs rarely happen overnight. It tends to introduce itself into our lives and then it gradually changes the way we live our lives. In a prior conversation, you quoted C.S. Lewis uh, saying how day by day, nothing changes, but when you look back, everything is different. I think this quote is just 
just, I mean, it couldn't be more fitting for the tech-soaked world that we're finding ourselves in. So getting to the point um, and touching on previous questions, smartphones, computers, the internet, social media, how they changed us for better or for worse. How does the dawn of zero UI interfaces have an even bigger potential? Or I guess we've kind of already talked about that, but perhaps stated more clearly when this technology seeps into our lives so effortlessly and just becomes so convenient that we all say, yes, please, without reading the terms and regulations, what are the main consequences that we should look out for in this new technological wave? And perhaps even more importantly, what should leaders around the world and consumers like you and me be doing today to mitigate the consequences that may apply in the future? Uh, I agree with you uh, in terms of how we introduce technologies without thinking a second, what will be the impact on individuals and society? And then I mentioned that already. But the, the, the interesting thing to me is that like we don't stop there. We uh, take technology to the extreme where without the technology, living the life will be impossible or keeping up with the rest of the society becomes impossible. And um, of course, zero UI has uh, much more impact on how society is going to transform in the future because we're not talking about a single individual uh, technology. We're talking about multiple technologies that are using personal data that are uh, thriving on connected uh, universal databases in order to provide that level of convenience everywhere, uh, regardless of which service providers providing it. And, and as I said, um, in, the, in the short run, education is our best bet. We need to first educate ourselves and service providers should start educating their customers as to how the data is being used and uh, for what reason. And we need to have some principles in place, which actually GDPR in Europe plays a good role, where the need for data, the use for data should be kept at a minimum and no data that is not needed should be stored in uh, you know third-party databases at all. And um, this is what I follow in my daily life, in my daily work. Uh, I mentioned, for example, biometrics technologies work in a way that they don't actually need uh, the, the image once the mathematical model created. So we never, for example, um, store any image or any data that was uh, turned into a mathematical model in order to be used as a biometric ID. When we look at the when we look at the the, the, the long run, uh, as I said, the only way I see a zero UI utopia working is that we have more control and understanding over our data. So one of the projects that I personally uh, taking forward, and then this is um, coming from someone who has worked with multiple service providers in different industries providing biometric solutions. I believe that the only way this would work where we share our data to service providers on a need to know basis. So if I am flying tomorrow to Helsinki, through Helsinki airport to Oslo, for example, I will have the right to share the access with Finnair, with Helsinki airport, with the commercial partners that is going to make up my itinerary, as well as the counterparts in Oslo. And once my travel is concluded, meaning that I checked into my hotel, I am in my hotel room, that data is not relevant to those service providers anymore. So they shouldn't have any access to that kind of data once the need for data is ended. So all in all, I believe that's the future we should be uh, working towards if we want zero UI 
uh, future to work. Definitely. And I think even though the GDPR, uh, the Global Data Protection Regulation, uh, presented a lot of pain points for very many companies in Europe a few years ago, I think all in all, as you mentioned, it's been a blessing in disguise because it does protect a lot of consumers that aren't necessarily very interested in technology and aren't asking those necessary questions about how long are you storing my data? What are you doing with my data? And even just the action of asking for consent. I think this is, I actually think it's uh, been very good that we have rules set in place so that this doesn't spin completely out of control. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Uh, this conversation has been super interesting and inspiring. I, I really find this field fascinating. But before I let you go and sail off into the weekend, I have three quick questions. If you could give your 20-year-old self one piece of advice, what would that be? I would probably tell myself, uh, don't be sad. Uh, working at a call center, call center agent is not going to turn out to be so bad after all. So uh, yeah, with that, I would tell myself that it's important to cherish every experience because once you know how to frame them, you can use them in whatever uh, desire you have for your career next. You know what? I fully agree. I think uh, most of my career has been built on taking a lot of random chances. And at the time, you might not know what they will turn out to be. But uh, as you said, they uh, they tend to bring you further on, regardless of what direction that is. But it's uh, usually a positive one if you uh, if you say yes to opportunity. What's your favorite uh, podcaster? Do you have a podcaster book to recommend? Actually, yeah. The three uh, favorite po podcasts of mine nowadays is uh, Future Forecast, uh, <laughs> Stuff you. you Should Know, and uh, Hidden Brain. Um, so I definitely uh, recommend everyone who is interested in technology to actually follow uh, the, the, the Hidden Brain as well. Because once you get to understand how you work and how your brain operates, you have... Uh, a different perspective on how technology works and why we have the technologies uh, the way we have them today. I fully agree. I listen to uh, obviously all those three podcasts as well, but uh, Hidden Brain is great because it uh, allows you to see a lot of the things that you would never reflect on, but that they've actually gone into the psychology of and uh, found some really cool insights on. Where should people go to follow you online, Tugbek? I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, I have a website tubekduman.com where people can uh, reach me uh, my twitter handle is at uh, tubekdmn so yeah those would be the, the the channels to reach me cool thank you so much for joining us uh, today it's been uh, really really fun to speak to you and uh, i wish you the best of luck at uh, futurist thank you very much and i wish you the best of luck in uh, in the future and in the podcast Thank you for listening to Future Forecast, a podcast produced by Oslo Business Forum and myself. Tune in in two weeks for more interesting insights on technology, leadership and sustainability with experts from around the world. If you like this podcast and are wondering how can I support them, please take a second to give us a five star review wherever you listen to podcasts because it does really help. And if you have a friend or a colleague that you think might appreciate it, every share on social media counts. Oh, and by the way, if you can think of anyone that should be on the podcast or perhaps you think that yourself would be a really good fit, please shoot us a message on Instagram. My Instagram is isabel.ringness. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.